Section 9 of Dog Heroes of Many Lands. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sherry Lothridge. Dog Heroes of Many Lands by Sarah Noble Ives. Chapter 9. Ask Him, an Indian Dog. We reached the old red line house about five in the afternoon of a wonderful August day. A little late in the season it was for the best fishing, but it was something to know that the black flies and mosquitoes would be thinned out, and that what fishing we did would lack this annoyance of the great north woods. It was good to leave the dusty CPR at the little lumbering village. It was solid comfort to shed the trappings of civilization and settle into serviceable woods togs. It was delicious to skim over Spider Lake in a steam yacht that ran by tea-kettle power and breathe the spicy odors of the pines and psalms on shore, mingled with the reek of old skipper, Jack's oil can, and the blessed aroma of wood smoke. It was an experience never to be forgotten, that ten-mile ride in the rickety buckboard over hills of stumps and down dales of mud puddles. And here at last I climbed down and stretched the kinks out of my arms and legs, the line house stood gaunt and bare in the middle of a clearing, around which rose fir-clad slopes, with vistas between, blue with what wonderful depth of color one sees on a very clear day. Its name was due to the fact that it was built on the state line, half in Maine and half in the province of Quebec. Its fame came down from old smuggling days, when its advantageous position made it a most convenient place to evade customs. You had only to shift your contraband articles across the line, and there you were. Now it had become a wayside inn for trappers, hunters, sportsmen, and lumberjacks. I elected to stay here for the evening meal, after which we would tramp over to Arnold Pond a mile farther on. There we would find boats to take us across to the camp, which was to be our base of supplies for a month. On the stoop sat a lad about eleven years of age, one arm around a rickety pillar, the other slung across the shoulder of a sober-minded tan-colored dog. The pair had that nameless something about them that irresistibly attracts. "'Hello, Sonny, is that your dog?' "'Dad's. It's the same thing.' "'What's his name?' "'Ask him.' "'Why, he couldn't answer if I did.' "'Ha, ha!' laughed the boy. "'You're fooled. Everybody is. First time.' "'It's a trick name. That's really it. Just ask him.' "'Ha, ha!' I chorused amiably. "'I certainly was fooled. How did he come by such a name as that?' "'Why, you see, he's an Injun dog. An old trapper gave him to Dad. His squaw was sick or something, and Dad gave her a dose that cured her. The Injun was mighty grateful, and about a week after, Dad meant the whole outfit moving, and the squaw was toting the papoose and the wigwam poles like she had never been sick.' The engine he up dog to Dad, for a thing-offering or something. The boy hugged the dog a little closer. And when Dad said, What's his name? the engine answered, Ask him. Him heap smart beaver dog. So Dad just called him that. He's a trick dog, too. This promised to be interesting. I sat down on the other side of the dog, who looked at me in a dignified way, and then let his gaze rove off to the hill-line. On the edge of the wood the lonesome birds were thrilling the air with their long, soft notes. No doubt that Askham heard them, and no doubt that he heard other and finer sounds that the stunted instincts of the human race may not fathom. What tricks can he do? Shake hands. Ask him. 
The dog gravely lifted his paw for me to shake, after which a lump of sugar was purloined from the supper table, and he was induced to hold it on his nose and catch it. Then at the words of command he went solemnly through all his round of tricks. He fetched and carried, stood on his head, sneezed, walked on his hind legs, and ended by saying his prayers, with his head bowed over the boy's shoulder. When the performance was over he took his seat again by the boy. The applause of the onlookers did not move him. It was enough that he had performed the duty his little master had imposed upon him. Life was evidently a weighty matter with him. Serious and silent he sat there, like the Indians among whom he was bred. "'He's more in that, and better in that. Indeed, what a remarkable animal! What else can he do?' "'He's a beaver-dog, and a real one. That engine trained him when he was a puppy, so he can smell him out anywhere. The engines trap the beavers for their skins, and ask him used to go along and find them. I don't know how that engine ever parted with him. He must have been mighty grateful to Dad.' "'There's Dad now. He's a surveyor, you know.' The boy straightened himself up proudly. "'I'm going to be a surveyor when I'm a man. Dad takes me on little trips like the one we're doing now. He's teaching me to box the compass and run out the chain, and I'm going to begin to get altitudes and right angles and things pretty soon. I can tell you what a hypotenuse is now.' "'Good. There's the supper bell. We must go in. I should like to hear more about you and your dog later.' The boy stepped along by my side. I say, are you going over to Arnold Pond? We're going to spend the night there. Hey, Dad, we can all go over to the pond together. I... I don't know your name. I told him. Mine's Rob Randall, and this is Dad, and that's Jim Pearson, the chain-bearer. We're a surveying outfit, and ask him's the most important member. At the table the conversation became general. Bob's father, Dave Randall, was a tall, breezy, refined-looking fellow with a keen, honest blue eye. He had a fund of excellent stories at his command, and told them in good English. Easy it was to see where the boy got his fine fearless manner, and his unmistakable air of culture. He was a small copy of the man, and they were evidently great chums. Supper finished, my guide slipped his shoulders into the straps of my pack-basket, and we all strolled across the clearing and down into the twilight of the pines. Old gray beards, some of them were, this one precious spot had not yet been despoiled by the lumberman of its primeval beauty. Askin went ahead, stepped softly, with his nose low. Not capering, he. The business of living was too important. Suddenly he stopped, lowered his nose, sniffed, pointed, and was off down the trail, moving quickly and stealthily. "'He scented something,' said Bob to me. "'Let's go ahead and see what it is.' Around a bend in the trail we found him excited and eager, with his nose pointing toward a clump of fern, and his long homely tail trembling. Bob and I looked carefully. On the ground lay a bit of fur, nothing more. "'Some animal has been killed.' "'Look again,' whispered Bob. "'Close.' I leaned over. Two round eyes looked up out of the middle of the flat gray disk, and then I saw faintly the outline and tips of two pointed ears, laid back so flatly, that it was not easy to distinguish them. "'A baby rabbit,' said Bob softly. His mother told him he mustn't move. See here. He stooped over, stroked the soft fur once, twice, then the bunny's nerve broke and it jumped deeper under the fern and crouched again. Ask him watched, but made no attempt to touch it. "'Why didn't your dog go for it?' I asked as we moved up the trail. "'Cause he's a beaver dog. 
He's trained so. He isn't a butcher. He's just a what-do-you-call locator. He finds the burrows and scents all kinds of game. You see, if a dog catches a beaver, likely he'll spoil the fur, so ask him knows he's not to touch. At the landing we found a boat, and my guide and the chain-bearer, each with an oar, rowed us over to the camp. We shook hands with the man and the woman at the cookhouse, chose our respective log cabins, and then while my guide took the boat back to the landing for the next comer, Bob, Askham, and I, in one of the camp boats, paddled out on the pond in the gathering twilight. On all sides down to the very shore rose great pines, spruces, and hemlocks, with a dark line all around the rim of the pond where the deer in the winter months had nibbled away all the green twigs as high up as they could reach. Askham suddenly began to tremble and gaze off across the water, making now and then a whiffing noise, almost a whisper. He sees something. Watch now. Keep perfectly still and look where he does. Through the pale gold of the western reflection we saw a ripple, then a small head parted the water silently, making for the shadows of the shoreline. There was no sound anywhere, and we held our breath. Suddenly my foot slipped and my boot rasped along the bottom of the skiff. We heard a heavy thud on the water, and the animal was gone. Askham gave me one disapproving glance, and then, splash! He went over the side, heading for the nearest land. "'That was a beaver,' said Bob. "'Didn't you hear his tail slap the water? Askham's gone to find his burrow. There's a big beaver dam down at the outlet, and Dad says there used to be some hutches that they built once long ago. But when they made the camp on the pond, the beavers didn't like it, and they destroyed their houses.' and now they live in their burrows on the shore, with their doors under water. They feel safer that way, I suppose. Askham will find right where that one lives. But no one is allowed to kill beavers here, so that old fellow is safe. Sure enough, the dog did locate the burrow, and it was with difficulty that we found him and persuaded him to return to the boat. I'll keep hold of him now, so that he can't get out again, said Bob. He's a wonderful center. He can find a burrow under four feet of snow. He sends all kinds of things—bears, wolves, lynxes—and once—it's sort of long, but I'd like to tell you—Dad never tells it himself, but he lets me. Would you like to hear it? Honest? Do tell me. The moon is coming up, and we needn't go in quite yet. Dad'll call when it's time to turn in. Well, it was most two years ago. Dad had some surveying to do up north of Quebec, and he started off with Jim Pearson and two portagers to carry the duffel and the canoes, because it was to be a very long expedition, up through the real wild wilderness. Ask him when, of course, he always does. He's a very valuable member. You see, he knows where the game is if they want fresh meat. Now September was a mighty fine month, and they kept going and going, and they went farther than they planned at first and they got a long ways up in the woods, where the ponds haven't any names, and there aren't any trails, except Injun ones. Then the cold weather came, and it was just nipping. Everything froze up tight, and the snow came very early. But they kept on because some of their work was easier to do when the ponds and streams were covered with ice. Nights they used to find a sheltered place and put up their duck tent. Dad has a jim-dandy little sheet-iron stove, that is a ripper when it gets going, and they'd hive up around it as warm as toast. Old Askham would go to sleep between Dad and Jim, and he was as happy as anything. Once in a while an Indian trapper would come along, and Dad would send a letter down to Montmorency. That's where we live. 
and I can tell you mother and I would be the gladdest things in Canada when we got those little old leaves torn out of his diary. Then there was a long time when we never got a word, and mother and I sat around waiting and worrying. Mother got thin, and she used to cry a lot. I saw her once cry right into the frying pan, and the tears sizzled. But if she thought I was looking, she'd pretended to laugh and talk about what we'd do when Dad came back. The last letter we got came about Thanksgiving time, and after that we didn't hear anything more, and we never did know about them till they got home, way along after New Year's, and we came mighty near losing Dad that time. If it hadn't been for—but that comes farther along. When it got very cold and they had to stow the canoes and go out the rest of the way on foot, the portageurs carried the tent and the grub, and Dad and Jim had the compass and chain. It kept getting colder and colder, and after a while they came to stop working and make camp to keep warm. One morning Dad and Jim started out on their snowshoes with asking for a center to see if they couldn't find a caribou or something. They needed some fresh meat to help out the grub supply if they had to stay very long. They went an awful long way and never found a thing. Then all of a sudden the sky got gray, and there came up a terrible blizzard, the kind that freezes the tears on your face and drives needles into you, and if you don't look out you get frozen stiff. There was only one thing to do. They dug a hole in the snow on a slope away from the wind, way down to the ground, so as to make a hearth for their fire. Then they made this hole big enough to put in some basalm beds. They roofed it all over with basalm boughs, so they were quite snug and cozy, and the wind could whistle all it wanted to. They stayed two days like that till the blizzard was over. The bother was that they didn't have anything to eat, only a few little pieces of jerked venison that they had carried for the one day's hunting. When they crawled out the third morning, the world was all white, without a break, even the trees were great lumps of snow and there wasn't a track anywhere. In the storm they had gotten turned around, and they didn't know which way to go to find the portagers. The compass was at the main camp, and the only way they could tell north from south was by the moss on the tree trunks. They would just have to let the portagers find them. They all hunted everywhere, but there wasn't the teeniest sign of even a squirrel. Askin went around smelling into the wind for miles, but it was just like all the world was dead. That was the time he came so near to getting his toes frozen. They thought him out just in time. Well, they kept getting hungrier and hungrier. Dad and Jim took in their belts till there weren't any more holes, and Ask Him looked thinner than an old starved wolf. I don't know how many days they went hungry. Dad never could tell. He lost count. But they were pretty near the jumping-off place, I can tell you. The lad hugged the wet coat of Ask Him closer to his. Then one day Jim told Dad that they'd have to eat little old Askin to save their own lives, and Dad said he'd as soon eat Jim or have Jim eat him. If it came to a question of starving to death, they could just starve, but Askin was one of the boys, and Dad hadn't come to be a cannibal yet. Jim used all the suasion he had, but Dad just told him to go chase himself, and he sat down in the snow hole with his hands hanging over his knees, looking at the fire, and he wouldn't speak another word. Then Jim he got desperate, and he told Dad he'd just go out and see if he couldn't find a mink or a muskrat or something on the other side of the hill they were burrowed into. He called Askham, and they went off with a gun and left Dad alone. He'd gotten too weak to hunt any more. Jim was praying all the way that something would turn up, but there wasn't a track or a sign of game, 
and no hope of finding any. He went off an awful long way so Dad wouldn't hear anything. It was just a question to Jim of whether all three of them should starve together or that Askim should die, and he and Dad should live. A sob broke in the boy's throat, and he looked straight into the wise eyes of the dog. "'Ask him, old fellow. Jim was going to kill you, so's Dad and he could eat you and keep alive theirselves a little longer. But he didn't, he didn't. He called you up to him away out there in the wilderness, and he put his finger on the trigger of his gun and tried to pull it, and he couldn't. He trembled so. And he knew if he didn't do it pretty soon, he would never have strength to do it at all. And then he aimed again, and he looked along the sights of his gun-barrel at you, and there you were, sniffing, just sniffing at the ground and paying no attention to Jim at all. And then, and then you began digging with your old lean paws, and every little while you would almost tumble over, you were so excited and so weak. But you wobbled along and kept digging deeper and deeper. And then Jim threw down the gun, dropped on his knees, and helped you dig, cause he knew you had scented something. And he just prayed that you wasn't going to be fooled, and he dug and dug. Bob turned to me with shining eyes. And what do you think they found? A cache, a big cache left there by some engine. There were pork, beans, peas, flour, tea, enough to keep him for a long time. Well, maybe Jim didn't give Ask him a good hugging, and they gave him some of the pork in little pieces so he wouldn't choke himself. Then he ate some himself to make strength to get the things back to camp. He toted the grub back with him, and when they got to the snow hole, Dad was still sitting there, not sensing anything, and Jim yelled in his ear, "'Dave, we're saved! Ask him, little old Ask him did it!' They had more than enough to last until the portagers came up and found them, and when they went away they took things from their own duffel and filled the engine's catch fuller than ever, and they left a big order for him at the first trading post they passed on their way back. The night when they came home Mother fainted away, and when she came to, Dad had her in his arms, and Jim was pouring water on her head, and Askin was barking like mad, cause he didn't know what they were doing to her. He likes Mother a heap. "'Bob, time to turn in!' Dave Randall's mellow voice echoed across the water. The boy unbuttoned his coat, put it half around Askin, who was shivering, and silently I paddled the boat up to the silvery moon trail to the little wharf. End of Section 9